Welcome to the Press Pass Podcast. I am your host, Liam McEwen from The Big Lead, and today we have a very special guest in Max Adler, Editorial Director of Golf Digest. Max, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. And as always with Press Pass, Max is here to talk about his own journey through media, but he's also here to discuss the remarkable tale of one Valentino Dixon. Dixon spent 27 years in prison following a wrongful murder conviction, and after he brought his story to Max's attention, he was exonerated in 2018 following the unrelenting efforts of Max and other parties to allow the truth to come to light. But we'll get to all that. So Max, how about we start by just sharing your own journey through this industry from when you first realized that this was what you wanted to do to where you ended up now as the editorial director of Golf Digest and through that learned about Dixon's case. Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm not really sure there ever was a moment where I said, you know, this is what I want to do. I just kind of followed uh, my passions of wanting to be able to play golf. And uh, I was able to play golf for free as long as I could. And then that sort of segued into a job for Golf Digest. I, um, I got into golf uh, via caddying uh, when I was a teenager, and we could play for free after work. Uh, and then I played college oh, golf, and uh, that segued into a uh, postgraduate scholarship uh, to University of St. Andrews in Scotland, continued to play college golf, and that's when I started um, doing some freelance ghostwriting assignments for Golf Digest. Uh, as I was there under this sort of academic athletic scholarship called a ransom uh, scholarship. And uh, so I went straight from Scotland to, to Golf Digest. So I've never been that good a player, but always managed to find a, a place to, you know, where, where golf was the environment. And how did you, did you just see writing as sort of your segue into it after you were done with college? Uh, yeah, so I was a, uh, a studio art major in college. I uh, had no real uh, or concrete career ambitions. And then part of the deal was in order to become eligible uh, for this ransom scholarship uh, to the University of St. Andrews, I had to get into a graduate program. And uh, seeing as I had none of the other requisite classes for anything more um any of the more sort of serious or scientific disciplines, uh, I was able to, you know, get into the School of English uh, as someone who had a sort of general humanities degree and was really interested in writing short fiction and short stories and, uh, you know, maybe becoming a novelist. And so it was really sort of a love of writing uh, married with a love of actually uh, playing and competing in golf. Uh, I was able to kind of think, you know, maybe I could, maybe I could work for Golf Digest and they were kind enough to give me a few uh, trial assignments, small as they were. And how did you find that transition from starting as a writer and then sort of making your way up into the editorial department? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's a pretty porous line, I think, between writers and editors uh, here at Golf Digest. You know, the, the, the people who write stories are also uh, commenting on and trying to improve the and focus the work of their colleagues. So whether you're an editor or a writer, it, it really just kind of more indicates where the percentage of your work is. If you're if you're an editor, you're you know, you're, you're overseeing more stories and your focus is much wider. Uh, and if you're a writer, you're probably focused more just on 
you know, fewer stories, the ones that you're pursuing, but at, at all times, you're kind of aware of what everyone else is doing. So I feel like the, the, the two are more closely related than maybe people make them out to be. Yeah, that makes sense. Was there um, any story in particular early on in your career that made you kind of realize, like, I can really do this? Uh, I don't, I can't think of one in particular, but I, uh, you know, I really love that, that golf could be this springboard to write about just about any topic. Um, because, you know, if you're writing about golf, you're, you're writing about people. And if you're writing about people, you're writing about different jobs, different things in life, different, uh, stories and stresses. So as long as a story has like one element of golf, as it touches the game and in some tangential way, you can kind of be freed up to write about anything. Um, one of the, the early series I did was this thing called golf saved my life. And mm -hmm. it was looking at a way in which golf was either a, you know, a li literally or metaphorically help someone get through a rough time in their life. And I remember interviewing, uh, Reg Murphy, uh, who, who you remember from the USGA who was kidnapped and put in the backseat of a car in the trunk of a car rather, uh, for close to 40 hours and used golf as this sort of like continuous memory, uh, that he, you know, would play rounds in his head to avoid, you know, freaking out. Um, and then, you know, I talked to another guy who, you know, he, he won a closest to the pin contest and part of that closest to the pin contest was an award to go get a checkup at a hospital and he goes and gets his checkup and sure enough, uh, he needs heart surgery that afternoon. So it's like, so you end up writing about kidnapping, you end up writing about police, you end up writing about hospitals and medical care, all with golf being just the sort of initial element into all of them. Um, and, and so I guess that's what I, you know, that, that that's what really resonated with me is that it wouldn't be limited to this one area. It's, it's really anything. Mm, definitely. And what is it exactly about golf that you feel like it speaks to people at levels that other leisure sports might not necessarily reach? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I guess, you know, golf is special because, you know, we play it throughout our lives. Uh, so, you know, there's more things, it, it, you know, it's going to be set against the sort of richer and fuller, uh, background you know because if you're playing it throughout your whole life that kind of brings everything into the world uh to that sport and then you know the other thing way to think about it is you know golf if it takes four hours to play you're uh you might actually only be standing over the ball and hitting the ball if you add it all up for like five or six minutes yeah. um and so it's a huge amount of time to be walking uh, riding in a cart, uh, talking with your playing partner. So golf's got a, a lot of space to it, a lot of dead, empty space, which I think just leads to greater storytelling. There's an old adage um, that in sports, you know, the smaller the ball, the greater the journalism. Um, you know, until you think about baseball and tennis having these great, uh, you know, rich canons of, of storytelling behind them, um, and maybe, you know, something like basketball, a little less so 
And uh, you know, maybe it's not exactly the size of the ball, but it's sort of the amount of, um, you know, dead time or downtime in those sports. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And that makes for a natural transition into uh, a discussion about Valentino Dixon's case. Now, it's been about one year since you wrote your final story on the situation. For some listeners, this case is very well known. Dixon wrote you a uh, wrote you a letter for that column, Golf Saved My Life, back in 2012, explaining his situation and that drawing golf scenery helped him get through his time in prison. Once looking into the case, you realize the mistake had been made and dedicate yourself to correcting that mistake over the next five or so years. But for those who aren't so well acquainted, what initially stood out to you about Dixon's story when you opened that first letter? Oh, God. You know, it, what really stood out um, was that it was handwritten. It was this you know, two-page college-ruled letter in, like, the most perfect penmanship you've ever seen uh, versus, like we all know, you know, the torrent of your email inbox. So just getting a letter like that that was handwritten um, was enough to capture your attention. Um, and also in addition to that was a very small, uh, drawing that he had had included within the letter, uh, that was, you know, quite aesthetically beautiful. Um, so yeah, I mean, just getting a, a letter sized envelope, uh, postmarked from a maximum security prison, uh, that's, that's enough to, I think make anyone want to want to read it and and, and really wonder uh, deeply about it, um, you know. Versus just getting a, a note on your email or a direct message on on Twitter or something. Yeah, and then you uh, so after the letter, you went and interviewed Dixon at the prison. What was that like for you, as far as when you just realized that this is because like that was probably was was that a moment where you realized that this is a bigger story than you might have expected? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I did a bit of background and digging before, uh, the first time I went up to Attica Correctional Facility to visit him. Um, but it, you know, it's certainly, it was the first time I had ever been in a facility like that. And it is, as it was built in the thirties, it's as dark and grim, um, and intimidating an environment as you might imagine, uh, and then also the element of, you know, you feel like you have the facts of a story somewhat down uh, and so much really hinges on whether one person is telling the truth or not. And then as, you know, you, you know, as, as a journalist, there's just this amazing, you kind of know it's, it's real or it's not when you sit next to a person and talk to them, you kind of, you have a good feeling for whether they are, uh, you know, they pass the smell test for, for lack of a better uh, metaphor. And, you know, sitting across a table from Valentino, uh, you know, his handcuffs were taken off. Um, you know, I'm within this close physical space to someone who's on paper a murderer. And uh, I totally didn't feel that at all. You know, he felt like, other people I meet where, you know, you kind of develop a good rapport and within, you know, 10 minutes, you feel like you're talking to a, another fine human being. And, 
I was there for a couple hours and I remember leaving thinking this guy is innocent and, um, you know, I really need to do everything I can, uh, to look into this case. When you, when you left and you thought that, did you have any sort of solid sense of what direction that you would go in to accomplish that? Uh, gee, not really. You know, his mother, uh, had kept all his legal files in these two giant cardboard boxes. Um, and you know, this is, these are documents gathered over the last 20 years, uh, through various unsuccessful appeals and other legal documents. And it was just a big mess. Um, so there really wasn't a clear direction other than, do what you normally do with any story, which is try to in, try to learn everything you can uh, and then distill it down to uh, a version that's easily presentable, uh, accessible to a general reader and and make it compelling. You know, I was really amazed uh, not having any legal background, just the volume of paperwork that a single case uh, can generate. I mean, it's just like literally thousands upon thousands of pages. Uh, and it was really, it was really distressing just seeing how much sort of waste and sort of empty vacuum there is of, of one legal side talking to the other. So, um, you know, the direction was to, to take all of this and try to present it in a, in a cogent, kind of clear way that would make, um, you know, the average person, the average golf digest reader, uh, take notice. And when you've published that very first story, kind of outlining all the stuff that you had learned, did it, did you feel like it, 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 it I mean, you know, in retrospect, it achieved the impact eventually, but from that first story, did it kind of get the reaction that you were hoping for? Uh, you know, I was still pretty new and young in my career. Uh, it definitely got a lot of reaction. Um, I got a lot of letters and emails, uh, you know, a lot of phone calls. There were a couple other TV stations that followed up wanting to, to do a follow-up. So it, it definitely landed with, you know, a certain amount of impact. Um, but, but uh, you know, I was quite naive in thinking that, okay, this it'll just be a short matter of time here before, uh, you know, the people in power sort of take notice of this um, great error that has occurred within their system and it's, and it's rectified. Of course, that was really just the beginning. Um, you know, the Golf Channel, uh, you know, put together an excellent show about a year later. Uh, there were more stories from other national news networks. Uh, you know, the, the students at Georgetown university, uh, six years later, uh, you know, took the, the piece that I had originally written and sort of created their own, uh, documentary, uh, which was quite compelling. And so it was really just kind of the first role of a snowball, um, you know, back in 2012. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I was, as I said, naive to think it would it would take little a little amount of time, but it ended up taking six or seven years. Yeah. Was there at any point in that six or seven years where you felt like it might have been hopeless? Yeah. 
I mean, it's funny you say that. I, it was literally within the last nine or ten months of that time frame. Uh, I had uh, collaborated with some of Valentino's attorneys to file um, a petition for clemency uh, with the New York state government. And clemency, this was actually a little bit of a, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, but Valentino having to swallow his, his honor and pride because clemency is really just an appeal to get out of jail uh, versus a pardon or an exoneration, which is, has different implications of saying you're innocent. Clemency is just, hey, time served, let's just move on. And uh, for a long time, he hadn't wanted to do that, but then he finally decided it was, you know, worth a shot. And his attorneys, based on a couple of different interactions they had had with people uh, in the correctional system, thought that they had a pretty good chance. And um, we, we would know by Christmas. And uh, of course, we, we received no word. So we knew that that, that petition for clemency had been denied. And uh, so that's when I really felt pretty hopeless. I just, I, I kind of five or six years had, had transpired. And I thought, man, I, I, I don't know what the next move is. And then walk us through kind of that last segment where you felt like that, but then things turned around and Valentino ends up getting released. Yeah, so I get I get a phone call uh, from uh, this woman, young woman Isabel uh, Isabella Guntelek at Georgetown University. She explains to me that she's part of this class of undergraduates who are taking uh, likely cases of wrongful conviction, and that they had read about Valentino's case. Uh, in my story in golf digest and they wanted to pursue this for their class. And their class was, um, led by this professor, Mark Howard, and they would very, you know, actively pursue a wrongful conviction case for course credit. And they would create a documentary. They would interview witnesses. They would actually, you know, help, um, the, you know, the, the incarcerated individual file an appeal. They would just do all elements to better learn the legal system. And um, so, yeah, I kind of shared what information I had, uh, you know, the contact information of some various old witnesses, all my notes, and kind of lo and behold, um, seven or eight months later, uh, the wheels started seriously turning. Uh, up there in Erie County, uh, in Buffalo. So, um, you know, my, my, my hats off to the, the students at Georgetown for kind of, you know, bringing the ball over the, over the finish line. It was really incredible. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, looking back on the situation, my biggest question that I have for you is sort of, it would have been easy at many points, I think, to kind of not necessarily completely give up, but sort of accept that it was a foregone conclusion that the justice system is broken and that even though Valentino Dixon is definitely innocent, it's going to be impossible for you, a writer, to get anything done. What kept you going during those doubts, if you ever had them? Um, you know, it sounds really uh, 
corny, but like a physical object. Uh, Valentino, right after I visited him that first time, he made for me in this uh, Attica leatherworking class a wallet uh, mm. that had my name on it with like a little golfer guy on it. And it was a great wallet. And uh, I just, that was my wallet that I carried. And so it just, I couldn't really go a day um, without having some little reminder that this guy's in there and he's innocent and he's, you know, I'm, I'm one of his kind of principal contacts on the outside world. So as, as hopeless as it seems, you know, just don't drop the ball, keep it, you know, keep the, keep the fight alive a little bit, even though I would certainly go through great periods of time where I would do nothing to, to kind of help his case. But I kind of was always reminded to kind of keep the ball in the air. And was there any sort of, once the case was wrapped up and Dixon is free, was there any sort of adjustment for you after dedicating so much of your time over the last half decade to this one specific case? Uh, not, not really an adjustment for me. I mean, there was a great, um, you know, you know, the, the cycle of our, our media, it was a huge story for what seemed like 72 hours. And I did do a million interviews and, and all that. Um, so that was a, you know, a great rush. Um, but no, I mean, simultaneously kept putting out uh, issues of golf digest and uh, had my mind on, other stories that, that we were doing. So, you know, life kind of normal life kept on in a, in a parallel way. For sure. And obviously over the last year, you know, Dixon has been enjoying life as a free man and you've been working as golf at golf digest, but now that you have the benefit of hindsight, a little bit of this situation, has it changed your outlook on anything? Oh, uh, yeah. You know, it's, I mean, I guess it, it, you know, it reconfirmed or renewed uh, my sense of the, the power of journalism. You know, like we all pursue stories that we think are important. Um, and sometimes it can feel like there's just so much getting published, uh, especially now in the, you know, in the digital age where, you know, more words are being published than ever before. Um, sometimes, you know, things can maybe start to feel less meaningful. Um, but I felt like it was a great reminder that, you know, things can still count. They can still, words can kind of help create real change. Um, and so it, it, it always pays to kind of stick to your guns and, and pursue what you think matters. Absolutely. Now we'll chat about Valentino a little bit. How often did you correspond with him during the course of uh, his case uh, being re-looked at there? Uh, so, like, during those six years, basically? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it would vary. Um, I would say, you know, it, it, there could be something around, there could be a great flurry of activity around, you know, me helping to you know draft a letter towards a certain um, official that he wanted me to talk to or some other kind of like media opportunity. 
Um, but by and large, I would say it was probably four or five times a year. Yeah, kind of like once every two months. Uh, you know, it would certainly slow if there really wasn't much going on. Um, you know, the case kind of is stalling. Uh, you're waiting on some paperwork to either get accepted or not accepted. And uh, in those downtimes, it, it was kind of become tough phone calls to have with someone uh, who's locked away. Uh, so we really, we kind of had more let I received I received more letters from Valentino than I certainly wrote to him. Um, but what I would do is I would send him back issues of Golf Digest because um, he liked having the reference material from the photography in there uh, to use for his drawings. Uh, so that was kind of the you know that was the the tenor of our our communication relationship. And have you guys kept in touch now that he's a uh, now that he's out of jail? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, probably more this year than than any other before. Um, Makes you sense. Know, we, we've been on a we've been on a couple trips together. Uh, we went to Mexico. I uh, taught him how to play golf a little bit. Uh, I was there when he reunited with his wife. Um, you know, we've done a couple little speaking engagements um, as he started a, a charity uh, called the Art of Freedom Foundation. Uh, I took him to the Masters because uh, he always wanted to go to Augusta National and uh, introduced him to, to Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods. He told Tiger he was going to win the Wednesday before the Masters, and oh. uh, sure enough, he did. So that was, that was a pretty amazing little moment. Um, so, yeah, you know, we've, we've, we've had a lot of, opportunities to, to get together in, in New York and Florida and Georgia and, and Mexico. And, um, yeah, he's a, you know, he's, he's definitely a, a true friend. Yeah. That's one of those uh, experiences that definitely solidifies a bond for life. I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope so. Oh. Hope so. All right. And then we're just going to shift to the last part of the interview here, which is just some little lighter questions on the lighter side of things. Um, What's your uh, what's your favorite memory with you and Valentino? Uh, my favorite memory with Valentino uh, is him walking down the courthouse steps uh, the day he was exonerated, and uh, I had told him kind of a few days prior that I wasn't sure if I was going to be there, and. Uh, and then I, you know, I, I went and so I kind of surprised him a little bit and he was, I mean, this is just this epic moment for him and his life. His family is there, um, you know, news cameras there. It's sort of a sea of about, I don't know, 70 or 80 people gathered on the streets of Buffalo. And, you know, he's just beaming a smile uh, from ear to ear. It's a sunny, perfect day. Uh, and he's, he's walking down the, the courthouse steps, the free man. He said his legs were just shaking and numb. And, uh, you know, he sort of gave me a big hug and he was sort of surprised to see me. And, um, that was, that, that was the moment. There've been a lot of yeah, moments, but that one's memorable. Yeah. That's a pretty remarkable moment to be a part of, especially sunny and all that. I mean, that's, that's straight out of a movie. Yeah. Every time I'd been to Buffalo, like, well, on various trips going to Attica or up there for other reasons it's always been raining and foggy 
And like that time, it was the first time I, you know, saw Lake Erie actually, uh, because it was actually clear and it was, it was perfect as you said. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Nice weather in Buffalo. Hard, hard to come by unless it's a miraculous moment. I see. Uh, then just sort of, uh, from a general standpoint, um, you know, you, you have been in the industry for a while and you especially went through something really, really unique as far as Valentino's story goes. Is there anything that you wish you knew when you were first starting out that you know now? Yeah, I mean, I wish I had had a, a crystal ball and, and realized just, the ways that digital publishing would, would transform our industry and, and gotten out ahead of it, uh, in a few different ways. But, um, I don't really have a a great answer for that other than I feel like there's so much I need to learn every single day. Mm -hmm. And then what's the one thing about your job that you feel like other people don't know or don't necessarily understand? Uh, <laughs> you know, I guess the one, the one thing about my job that maybe people don't understand is that we're just not playing golf every single day. Uh, you know, putting out a, a magazine every month, uh, you know, putting out uh, a website that's updated with, you know, 15 to 20 news stories every single day. There, there are a fair amount of emails and, and work calls and deadlines. So, uh, not to complain. I think it's about the coolest job in the world, but um, I think people have an outsized notion of, of how much golf we actually do play. Mm-hmm. And then finally, last but certainly not least, this might be a tough one for you. What's your favorite golf course that you've ever had the chance to play? Favorite golf course that I've never had the chance to play or that, that I have played? That you have played, but also that you haven't played because that's a good question now that you mention it. Okay. Well, um, I'm not a big favorites guy. Uh, I, you know, I, I hate listing one, um, but living at the old course in St. Andrews, uh, playing that a fair number of times. And every time, you know, you get to the 16th tee and you see, you know, the, the old gray tune come into view and then you walk over the Swilkin bridge, uh, between 17 and 18. And you know that the footsteps of every golfer in history, uh, both the, the most famous and, and the multitudes who are nameless have walked over that same bridge. Um, it always just kind of brought a chill, uh, to your soul, to my soul, um, playing the old course. Uh, and I still have not played Augusta National. Um, you know, that's probably a missing course on the bucket list of many. Uh, but I, I know the course so familiar, so intimately from having covered a lot of masters there. So maybe one day we'll get out on it. Yeah, knowing it intimately, you know the corners to cut and whatever. I'm sure you, I'm sure you're playing. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Well, that'll conclude the interview, Max. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing this remarkable tale and being really honest and forthcoming with your answers. I appreciate it as always. Yeah, yeah. No, it was a pleasure. Uh, you're, you're a great interviewer. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, Max. I appreciate it. And thank you, listener, for tuning into the Press Pass podcast. I will see you next time.